Well, keep your place there in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we'll be looking at verses 15 through 29 tonight, or this morning, rather. Uh, Last week, Pastor Trey, hello, Pastor Trey, good to see you, I hope you're feeling well, better. Pastor Trey introduced the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes by pointing out the two questions that Solomon will take some time in answering. The questions are found in chapter 6 and verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? And the other question, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And much of the rest of the book are said about answering those two questions. Well, in his message last week, Pastor Trey directed us to the first answer to the first question, what is good for man? And the answer, of course, came to us that the knowledge that God prepares both good days and bad days, he is sovereign, and so we trust him. That's a good knowledge for man to have, for you and I to have. As we finish chapter 7 this morning, we'll see another thing that's good for man, and we'll see if he can find it out or not. That good thing is located in verse 18 of our text this morning which we'll come to in a moment. But what we find in these verses is another description of Solomon's pursuit of wisdom, which, spoil alert, wisdom is one of those good things we're going to be talking about today. Now, it may seem odd to say that, that Solomon would pursue wisdom, since Solomon was gifted by God to be the wisest man who ever lived, right? Why would the wisest man who ever lived pursue wisdom? Well, I think the easy answer to that is found in in this book, which is the fact that Solomon found the edges to his God-given knowledge. He found the boundaries which God wouldn't let him pass. In fact, as we'll see this morning, the wisest man on earth was often more of a fool than he was a wise man. And as we begin, let me just uh, note that this is a very difficult text to study as we read commentaries and other scholars who have studied the book of Ecclesiastes. These verses, verses 15 through 29, uh, are some of the most difficult verses in in all of the book. They're full of mystery. They have proverbs in them. And at Heather Hills, we want the Lord to speak through his word to us with his own message not some contrived message from your pastors. So we never want to go into the Word and try to make it fit something that we're trying to say, some agenda that we have. One of the ways we say it is that in our preaching, we want to give God the microphone and let the text speak for itself. But as you know, sometimes that requires serious work. In fact, we're told, we're commanded to study the Word, to be approved workers of the Lord, rightly dividing the Word of truth. So keep your eyes open this morning and your heart guided by the Holy Spirit as we join Solomon in his great search once more that he's been on in this entire book. Three points this morning. If you're taking notes, I hope you are. Uh, the first point is that to notice is the limits of wisdom, verses 15 through 18. Notice the limits of wisdom. 
How wise can you get and how much wisdom, how much can wisdom get for you? Both have a limit. We see some of these limits here in verses 15 through 18. Let's review those again. In my vain life, of course, vain, as we've talked about, vanity, vain, is the idea of briefness, that it's like a, just a, 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 a moment that vanishes. In my brief life, vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. <laughs> Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. If you've lived long enough, you've seen verse 15 come true. Sometimes the wicked prosper and the righteous perish. Here in this life, under the sun, people don't always get what they deserve. Not everybody gets what's coming to them. Or if you've read the Bible, you've seen verse 15 come true. What about Abel? What did he do wrong? What about Saul's son, Jonathan? What about Naboth, the owner of that vineyard that Ahab wanted? It's called righteous in the Bible. What about Job's sufferings? Here's a limit to wisdom. It's a limit to what wisdom can get for you. Wisdom doesn't guarantee prosperity. It doesn't guarantee control. It doesn't guarantee success. It won't guarantee that you get everything you want out of life. It doesn't even guarantee you a long life. It can't guarantee good health. More wisdom doesn't mean more control. Verses 16 and 17 go on to warn against two opposite wrong ways that you might respond to that lack of control. Look at verse 16 again. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? So if you hear more wisdom does not mean more control, like I do in this text, You might be tempted to think, well, he's only talking about regular people with regular levels of wisdom and righteousness. But, come on, we've got super-duper righteousness. We've got extraordinary levels of wisdom. Surely we can game the system, can't we? In other words... There's a way you can overdo anything, even the pursuit of righteousness. In other words, verse 16 warns against what I would call perfectionism. Sometimes we call it legalism. In the New Testament, we often call it Pharisaism because of the Pharisees acting this way. Perfectionism is a form of control worship. You say to yourself, if I can just tick off every box, if I can just do it all, if I can meet every moral target that there is for me to meet, 
then God will bend to my will and give me what I want. And all my problems will be solved if only I can be righteous enough. That's the lie that perfectionism tells you. And all of us, I'm sure, have struggled with it at different times, haven't we? But of course, you can't live up to that, can you? Verse 20, which we'll we'll hit a little later, but verse 20 tells us, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And this is why verse 16 warns about destroying yourself. There, There is such a thing as an inhuman pursuit of holiness. Things like faith, confession of sin, forgiveness, patience, ultimately realism, they all have a role to play in the Christian life. Otherwise, you run the risk of driving yourself crazy and driving all the people around you crazy. But then verse 17 warns against an opposite ditch you might fall into. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? In other words, you might be tempted to ask, if more wisdom doesn't mean more control, then who cares? Why bother? Why not just get the most pleasure out of life? Why not just do whatever I want? Now, in saying, be not overly wicked, the author is not giving permission for a little wickedness. To condemn much is not to approve a little. The point is simply this. Don't run into the opposite ditch. Don't become a perfectionist or, we might say, a hedonist. Don't pursue self-righteousness or self-love. You can kill yourself with perfectionism You can kill yourself with unbridled, uncontrolled lust. The point is, don't fall to either of them. Understanding verse 18 turns on what the word this and that mean in in that verse. I don't think that they refer to wickedness and righteousness as if somehow, you know, we're supposed to lay hold on wickedness. (laughs) I don't, think, I don't think that's where Solomon's going. If you look in verse 16, you notice that there's another pair there. It's wisdom and righteousness there in the same verse. And I think that the this and that in verse 18 refers to righteousness and wisdom. That's what I think. In other words, you need both of those. You need to lay hold of both of those good things. And one thing that wisdom will do is it will teach you the limits of your own righteousness, of your own wisdom. So big picture, what should the limits of wisdom teach you? The applications here are endless. Let me just pick two of them. The limits of wisdom should, first of all, teach you humility. Secondly, should teach you submission. Humility, because the more that we know our own limits, the less we have to boast about, right? The better you know your limits, the quicker you'll be to confess your sins to God and to others. 
the more aware that we are of our own weaknesses, the quicker that we'll ask for help from God and from others. The clearer that we, the clearer, um, that, that we have a sense of our own limits, the more that we will help other people in their weaknesses instead of looking down on them and judging them and despising them. And knowing your limits not only teaches you humility, it also teaches you submission, submission to God. You and I don't have all wisdom. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, didn't have all wisdom. God does. You aren't in control. I'm not in control. God is. And that is a good thing for men and women to know. Notice, secondly, the benefits of wisdom. Verses 19 through 22. In this last week, what have you done to seek wisdom? Think about that for a minute. Where does wisdom rank in your list of life goals? Kids that are in the congregation, young people. People probably ask you all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are you going to do when you go? What are you going to study when you go to college? What are you going to do? What if you told them, I want to be wise when I grow up? What do you think is more important? Whatever job that you have when you're growing up? Or whether you're wise in God's sight? For all of us, what can wisdom get for you that success and prosperity can't? What are the benefits of wisdom? Well, there are at least three here, I think, in these verses that I want to notice. The first benefit that we see is positive. It's in verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Political office gives you a measure of power over others. Wisdom gives you power over yourself. Which would you rather have? Power over people or power over your own unruly heart? How well can you govern others if you can't govern yourself? How else does wisdom benefit? In verses 20 to 22, I think there are at least two more benefits here. But these are expressed negatively rather than positively. So one such help that wisdom provides us is recognizing the reality that everyone on earth has a sinful nature. Look at verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That one sentence explains more about the world and about your life than every book of human philosophy that has ever been written. Wisdom starts with knowing that our biggest problem isn't other people. It's ourselves. That's just what we saw. You remember in a couple weeks ago on Reformation Sunday when we looked at Ephesians 2 and we saw that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, looking at God's grace and how it made us alive. 
Our biggest problem isn't our circumstances. Folks, your biggest problem is not COVID. Your biggest problem is not who's in the White House. Your biggest problem is not what kind of issues you're having with your employer. Your biggest problem is not out there. It's in here. It's our hearts. Paul, of course, picks up on this verse, doesn't he? Did you recognize it? This verse is almost quoted in Romans 3.10. There is none righteous, no, not one, in describing human depravity. So when you recognize that, that's a good thing for us to know about ourselves, about the world around us. When you recognize that truth, then you can respond rightly to other people's sin as well. Look at verse 21 and 22. Do not take to heart, that's the important phrase, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. In other words, don't be too eager to hear everything that everyone is saying about you. Some of us have a fixation with social media. I mean, an addiction. We want to know everything that's happening with everybody all the time. There's a danger in that. Don't be too eager to hear everything that everybody's saying about you. You might not like some of it. Some of it's probably not true. But what good does it do you to hear it? If we're wise, we will let our own sinful words remind us not to take what other people say too much to heart. Don't let what other people say govern the way that you live, the way that you respond. Offer them the same grace that we ourselves need so often. Friends, if we would get this principle down, it would revolutionize our lives. One author asks, quote, How do you respond to the criticism you get at home? or the comments people make at school, or the snide remarks that you hear at work? Do you have the self-control to hold your tongue? Or do you tend to make the situation worse by answering back with angry words of your own? If we are wise, we will also follow the instructions that Paul told Pastor Titus to give the people in his church to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Titus 3.2 So there are limits to wisdom. We don't have it all. Only God does. There are benefits to wisdom. It can help you control your own hearts. And it helps you to show grace toward others. But there's also, thirdly, the elusiveness of wisdom Verse 23 down to verse 29. As I mentioned earlier, can you, can you imagine Solomon? Wise Solomon searching out for wisdom and struggling to find it. Looking for answers to questions beyond our pay grade. Many times a Christian's faith can be shaken when we don't find answers to those questions. The author 
pulls us into this struggle of faith here in verses 23 to 29. Look with me again at those verses. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Some hard-to-understand words in here. let's, Let's walk through it, see if the Lord gives us some understanding. In verse 23, he says, All this I have tested by wisdom. What's he referring to? He's talking about his whole quest for wisdom that's taken up the whole first half of this book. This book, have you noticed, has more questions than answers? It's a real challenge. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is, is, is kind of like a stubbed toe, right? It makes you stop, look up, stop whatever you're doing, and say, why does this hurt so much? And here in this paragraph, 23 to 29, it's especially important to keep this journey that Solomon's been on, keep it in mind. The author is, as it were, pausing along the trail, taking a seat, looking back over the ground he's covered so far. What are some of these conclusions that he's reached? Look at verse 23. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. 24. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. He's saying he's devoted his whole life to seeking wisdom, but he hasn't found it. He put his whole soul into the task of finding the big picture, and it escaped him. He he looked harder than anybody ever did for the scheme, for the plan, for the key that would unlock all of life's mysteries. But he came back empty. Why did he fail? Well, verse 27 gives us a clue. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. Here the author is reminding us of how he sought for this elusive wisdom. You'll remember throughout most of the book's first half, The preacher sought wisdom by simply observing and analyzing life under the sun, apart from God. He looks at everything he can, he experiences everything he can, 
and he thinks it through as far as he can, as far as his human reason, his human reason will take him. And what he comes back with time and time and time again is a mist, <laughs> a shadow, a puff of smoke, a cloud, a soap bubble, you know, like just about to pop when you go to touch it. The author here is criticizing himself. He's telling us why he didn't succeed. And it's only when we understand this big picture and how it relates to the whole book so far that we can make any sense out of the two statements that are about to come. Two statements about two women in two verses, verse 26 and verse 28. In verse 25, the author tells us he saw two things, folly and wisdom. I turned my heart to know, to search out, to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. Find that key to know the wickedness of folly and foolishness that is madness. He's trying to explore everything. What did he find? Well, we already know he didn't find wisdom. Look again at verse 26. I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and his hands are fetters, chains. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. I think what's helpful to understanding these last few verses is to remember that the first nine chapters of Proverbs, which Solomon had written previous to the book of Ecclesiastes, portray wisdom and folly as two women. Do you remember that? Several chapters in Proverbs 1 through 9 talk about wisdom and folly as women, two women. Each of them hold out their respective charms and benefits to the passing travelers. Each of them calls out for people to come and join her. But the two women have radically different characters and very different consequences if you follow them. That brings us to verse uh, 28. Well, actually, before we get to verse 28, just like Proverbs does, Solomon here is he's talking about folly, foolishness, as a woman. This woman, the way of folly, Madam Folly, sometimes we call her, is a pit of destruction. The preacher is basically telling us here, I fell into that pit. This is what I discovered. By searching for wisdom with only his reason to light the way, only under the sun, he only found wisdom's opposite. He didn't find Lady Wisdom herself. Now look at verse 28. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. The point of the first half of this verse is simply to say, if there's a needle somewhere in the haystack, I'm probably the one to find it. The point is, it's not about the presence of available men and women or the quality of available men or women. The point is the diligence and dedication of the person doing the seeking. So who's the woman he didn't find? Well, I would suggest that that's Lady Wisdom. The point is not 
that there was no righteous or virtuous woman to be found. There's no adjectives here qualifying these men or women that he found or, or didn't find. His point is simply, he didn't find the woman that he knew was out there. He didn't find the woman he knew he was supposed to be looking for. He found the wrong one instead. So the preacher is saying, if you go looking for answers, like he did, to ultimate questions, with only your reason to guide you, You're going to tie yourself up in nuts. You're probably going to end up in a pit of destruction. So verse 29 at the end of the section applies to the preacher as much as it does anybody else. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The preacher didn't find the answers he was looking for, but he did find that all people are sinners, himself included. People are not basically good. I've told you before about a trip Deborah and I made several years ago out to Los Angeles, California, when we were attending a conference. While we were out there, we visited the presidential library of Ronald Reagan, Uh, who was president for many of the years when I was growing up, uh, well-loved by most Americans. Um, His tomb is there. His grave is located there. And written above his grave are, are the words, I know in my heart that man is good. That's a very hopeful and idealistic view of mankind. It's not the biblical view. Of mankind. Man is not basically good. Behind the problem with our minds, behind the problem with our reasoning, is the problem with our hearts. The ultimate reason we don't find the truth is that our hearts are magnetized by sin. We are drawn irresistibly toward what demeans others to what damages ourself. We're drawn to that by our sinful hearts. We seek what we want to seek, and we want all the wrong things. We can't find ultimate truth on our own because the instruments to seek truth that we have are irreparably damaged. That something seems right and feels right doesn't make it right. You can't fully trust your own moral radar, our natural internal sense of truth and error when it comes to moral right and wrong. It's like a fuel gauge on a car on the dashboard with a crucial sensor that's about to fail. Sometimes you get an accurate reading and it tells you how much gas there is in the tank. Other times, it might say you're full and you're running on fumes. That's how our heart is, our unredeemed heart before God under the sun. It's like that. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What schemes, look at verse 29 again. 
See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. If you're here this morning or you're listening and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, you may not believe the first half of that verse about God making man upright. But my guess is you'd probably agree with the second half. They've sought out many schemes. It's pretty self-evident in the world around us, isn't it? What schemes that people pursue are most evidently wrong-headed to you? What do you think the people who pursue those schemes are looking for? The people that you despise the most when you hear about what they're doing. What do you think it is that they're looking for? What do you think it is that their heart is desiring? What is it that you think they want? And why do people so often seem to want the wrong things? Brothers and sisters, members of Heather Hills, God has answers that your reason and my reason will never and can never discover. God has answers that even if your reason could discover them, it will never fully understand them. Human reason is like a tiny flashlight that's almost out of batteries. You know, when you're trying to use one of those in your home when it's dark, and it's not very much help. God's revelation is like when you walk into a stadium and all the lights go on. And darkness is instantly light. Your faith and my faith may be shaken when we go through times when we don't find the answers that we're looking for. If you build your confidence in God only, when you, what you're, only on what your reason can prove, your faith is going to be like a brick building in the middle of an earthquake. The brick doesn't absorb that shaking. It just crumbles and falls apart and collapses. What you need is structural steel. And you only find that in God's Word, God's wisdom. Structural steel is flexible. It can bend without breaking. That's what faith in God's Word gives you. You can absorb the shocks of questions that you don't have the answers to. Faith always involves trusting God further than you can explain Him. Faith in God always involves trusting Him farther than you can explain Him. When your reason finds no answers, you can always rely on God's revelation. Now I'm going to ask the praise team to return to the front here for our final song. I want to summarize and kind of bring this to a a conclusion that's helpful. What have we learned this morning? Number one, wisdom has its limits. It cannot guarantee prosperity or control or a long life or freedom from injustice. You say, wait, 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 wait a minute. I read the law. I read the law of Moses. It says, you honor your father and mother, you get a long life. Well, that's true. Do you honor your father and mother? Well, there's the problem, isn't it? The truths of God's Word are true. Train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Is that true? Of course it's true. Do we train up a child in the way he should go? Sometimes. 
Maybe even most of the time. But not all the time. No perfect children because there's no perfect parents. The point of the law is to show us we can't keep it and bring us to Christ who always kept it perfectly. Wisdom has its limits. Second, wisdom has its benefits. It gives us inner strength, helps us with self-control. It helps us to understand why the world is as mixed up as it is. It helps us to be gracious toward others who are trapped in unrighteousness, just like we were. And sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes like we still find ourselves sometimes. Third, wisdom is elusive. There are questions for which we will not find answers under the sun. But there are at least two other beautiful truths in this passage that point us back to God. Did you catch them? I overlooked them on purpose so I could bring them up right now. In verse 18, we are told that the fear of God will help us to come out with wisdom and righteousness. Look at verse 26. We are told, if we please God, we can escape folly. The New Testament adds some wonderful truths. James reminds us, if we ask God for wisdom, he will give it to us, just as he did with Solomon, James 1.5. That doesn't mean, God, I'd like to be wise. Boop, we know everything. We have the answers to all the questions of life. No, 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 no. But when we ask God for wisdom, he gives us what we need to help get us through the part of life that we're struggling with. He helps us. He gives us strength. In his letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul teaches us that because we as Christians are in Christ, that Jesus becomes to us Wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30, just what we need. Just what Solomon says we need. What he says is good for man, righteousness and wisdom, which we look for and seek out with all of our human reason, and we can't find it. We find it in Jesus. We receive it in Jesus. Jesus becomes to us. That's what, the per- that's what the text says. He becomes to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Jesus brings that to us. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, the world must be a very confusing place for you. If you are to escape to Christ, you must please God. And the Bible tells us what that means. In Hebrews 11, we learn that faith is required to please God. You must believe that God is who he says he is. You must believe that God has done what he said he did. You must believe that his word is true. That his son died on a cross for your sins and rose again to life three days later. 
Solomon reminds us in verse 29. Look at that last verse again. He reminds us in this last verse that in the beginning, the world wasn't like this. God made man, the first man, Adam, to be righteous, pure, upright. But because of his sin, death and judgment came into this world and it awaits those who have not had forgiveness granted to them by God's grace and mercy. Now, man is all about his evil schemes. That's the rest of the verse, right? You know, we always look for that behind the news, right? Like, what is that evil scheme that's, that these people are up to? Yep, that's what people are up to. People without Christ are up to evil schemes. Don't be surprised by it. But because of the work of his son Jesus, our sins can be forgiven. Listen to the hope-giving words of Romans chapter 5, verse 15 and 17, and then we'll sing together. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Solomon said, I have trouble finding one man out of a thousand. We might say one man out of a million or out of a billion who walks uprightly before God. Brothers and sisters, here's your man, the man Christ Jesus, the man who wraps you in his righteousness, the man who allows you to please God, the man who grants you faith, repentance. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. This is good for us. It's good for us to have wisdom and righteousness. We can't find it on our own. But through fearing God, through believing who He is, through faith, through pleasing God, His Son Jesus becomes wisdom and righteousness to us. And that makes all the difference for those of us who live under the sun. Let's stand together. We'd love to talk with you more about this after the service if you need to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Please stop by our prayer room just over here to your left in the corner of the sanctuary where a counselor can open the Bible and pray with you and show you how to begin to follow the Lord Jesus this morning. Let's stand now and sing about our hope, our strong confidence, our firm foundation, our solid rock in the Lord Jesus.